0: Uh, I want to invite you this morning, we're going to be looking in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, um, we're getting toward the end of the book of 1 Peter, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in this, this section, um, but I, I want to invite you this morning to consider the church. And uh, one of the things that I've uh, observed over the years, and it, it's, it's pretty amazing, but this n- next month will be... Uh, 11 years since I was called to be the pastor of our congregation. Um, And uh, that makes me uh, probably one of the top third tenured pastors in New England. um, Because guys don't generally stay at churches for a long time. Um, You know the average tenure of a pastor in a church, non-Roman Catholic church in the United States, is 18 to 24 months. uh, And they move on. Um, That means that for everybody like uh, my dad, who has pastored two churches in 37 years, uh, there's somebody who moves every three to six months, Um, which is astounding to me, how somebody could possibly think that they're going to develop any kind of actual relationship with people in that time frame. Um, I've known uh, Dr. Delisi for 11 years, that means, and we still are trying to figure each other out. Uh, You know? Uh, and Doc and Greg Jones were both on the pastoral search committee that brought me to Heritage and it in 2004. And, um, and it, so it's extraordinary to see, uh, to spend that kind of time um, in your in a congregation and uh, to see our congregation go through everything our congregation has gone through. And, uh, and we're not going to recount that here. But, but one of the things that, that I've encountered is often that, that people... Um, both in the pews, in the chairs, and from the pulpit or from the platform, don't have uh, really a solid idea of what the church is. I, I think this is extraordinary um, that and, and this is an extraordinary thought, but the Roman Catholic Church uh, did not have a definition of the people of the church until 1960s until the 1960s. Um, basically there were two kinds of people in the Roman Catholic Church. There were priests, and there were people that were not priests. And that was the entire way that they defined the entire world. You had priests and not priests. Well, what did the not priests do? Well, we don't know what not priests do, but priests do this. That was the way that the Roman Catholic Church structured was structured for you know, a long time, 1,500, 1,600 years. And uh, evangelicals, Baptists, Protestants, In many ways, we inherit a lot of our doctrine from the medieval church, the medieval Roman Catholic church, and one of the things that we've inherited is a real nebulous idea of what it means to be the people of the church. And so if you've been around us for a long time, you know that I spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, I I, I talk about the church and what our role is in the church an awful lot. And the reason is because um, I firmly believe that scripturally the church is the single most powerful thing in the the world, and it is also one of the single most misunderstood uh, things in the world. And so the apostle Peter seems to agree, uh, which puts me in good company, I assume. Um, but uh, in in his his letter, he has been talking about all kinds of different things, and he's going to conclude with a discussion of the church, uh, specifically about the leadership of the church, which which is um, for me, one of the most powerful passages of Scripture. But uh, just in case you're one of those people that really, really likes outlines, this morning, uh, um, for some reason, all of the pieces of First Peter kind of fell into a uh, an outline for me, and so I want to share with you. If you if you really like outlining a book of Bible, or you really want to understand what what First Peter is dealing with, I want to give you uh, just a, a real overview outline before we get into the message. Uh, chapter one. Verse 1 through 2, verse 12, is about sanctification. It's about being holy. And then, chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 7, is about submission. So, sanctification, submission. Chapter 3, verse 8, through 4, verse 19, is about suffering, and then chapter 5, verse 1 through 14, is about shepherding. So you get four S's. Second time in my life I've alliterated in a sermon. Um, but uh, four, four basic ideas. Sanctification, right? Sanctification, and then submission, and then suffering, and then shepherding. And so that's kind of what he's dealing with here. In chapter 5, he's going to begin talking about the leadership of the church um, and and I think that this is so important and so vital. We're going to spend a couple of weeks in chapter 5, even though there's only a couple of verses, so that we can look at what it means to be the church and, and what it meant to the Apostle Peter. And you say, well, okay, why, is, you know, why emphasize this? Well, if you, if you know anything about the church, you know that the Roman Catholic Church derives, uh, the idea of authority derives from the Apostle Peter. Uh, the idea of the the authority of the the Bishop of Rome or the Pope who was in the united I don't know if you noticed it's not like it wasn't plastered everywhere all right but the- the Pope was in the United States last week um and the the essential the core idea of a lot of their approach to the world is that Okay, so the Apostle Peter, he gave the keys of the kingdom to the next uh, uh, bishop of Rome, a guy named Linus, and then it passed down and and now it's been passed to Francis. And so there's a direct connection to apostolic succession, um, except for a couple bumps in the road when there were like five or six popes at the same time, but they sorted all that out. Uh, so, so Peter plays a crucial role in how we understand the church. And so we're going we're gonna to spend some time talking about what he has to say there. Um, so I want to invite you, before we go to the scripture, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. And then we're going to dive into this. Heavenly Father, you are all. We define things by the way you have created them. We describe things with language that you provide to us. And yet we struggle so often to understand what it is that you're doing in us and through us and among us. As we look to your word this morning, Father, help us to know Christ. That the written word would reveal the living word. And that we would then become the hands and the feet and the mouth and the the heart and the mind that acts as the body of Christ, as the physical presence of Christ here in this world. Give us clarity of thought, give us direction, give us engagement. Lord, help us to be the church a little bit better this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, First Peter chapter five and verse one. If you're visiting with us, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, page number is in the bulletin, page number 874. And we're gonna, we've already read this passage, so I'm not gonna read through it in detail. Um, we read it at the beginning of the service, but uh, I want to kind of hit some highlights of it and explore what Paul, what Peter has to say. He comes through this section on suffering, and then he begins. He says, "So I exhort you." Now, this is not a word we use in modern English. Um, we don't often talk about exhorting. Um, it's kind of an old word. But exhort is the, the idea, and the, the Greek word um, is the idea of coming along someone, alongside someone and encouraging them. Right? So this is what he's doing. He's saying, let me encourage you. Let me, let me provoke you on to do a little bit better. Uh, let me be that, that spotter in the gym who encourages you to lift the extra five pounds. Or let me be that t- teacher that really motivates you to move to the next step. Or or let me be uh, the mom or dad who, who just says, just try a little harder, put a little bit more time in, and and you'll improve. So he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter describes himself in in three ways. He describes himself first as a fellow elder, then he describes himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and then as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he really looks at himself as a part uh, of what we are. He is a part of the church. And this is something, this is a significant element of our understanding of the church. The theological term is ecclesiology, from the Greek word ekklesia, which means church. All right? Um, As the church, theological terms always make a ton of sense if you know what they mean. Um, But the church is not, and this is a vital thing we need to understand the church is not um, a group. Of special people who take care of a group of not special people. Now you say, What do you mean? I mean the church is not defined by the hierarchy. Well, you gotta have, in order to have a church, you gotta have a bishop, and you gotta have a priest, and you gotta have deacons, and you gotta have this. That is not what a church is defined as. Now a church has vocational elders, if they can afford them, a church has leaders, a church has a building, a church can have all of those things, and it should have those officers. Uh, the scriptures are very clear that a church should have the offices of elder and deacon, they should be engaged, um, elder is a specific person, deacon is a role, there's, there's different details to that, but they're supposed to be a part of the congregation, but they don't define the congregation. They don't define the church. The church is not an organization that you plug people into a chart. The church is an organism whose head is Christ. And so for Peter, although he has a unique gift set and a unique calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is special in many different ways. He is still a fellow elder with you. He is still a fellow partaker in the glory. The word there, partaker, means we have this in common, koinanios. Um, This is something that we have together as a fellowship. This is something we possess together. So Peter is not taking himself and saying, I am special, you get to enjoy my presence, but rather we together are the glory of Christ that is to be revealed. Now that's an extraordinary word for a man who walked and listened to and spoke to Jesus A man who had such an intimate relationship that Jesus, the Lord of all things, the creator of all things, God himself in the flesh, lived in his guest room. And Peter says, I'm not special. We are all partakers of this glory. So one of the core ideas we have to understand about the church is that the church is uh, the relationships of people under Christ. It is is a shared thing that Christ is doing on earth. And Peter views it that way. In fact, he describes it as a flock. He says to the elders, the leaders of the church, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, watch what he says. He doesn't say shepherd the flock of God that you are in charge of. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, we don't live in a shepherd society. So shepherding is something that we don't have a whole lot of experience at. It's also not something that Peter had a lot of experience with because he was a fisherman. And I don't know if you know this, but there are not a lot of sheep in lakes. All right? All right. Um, so he must have learned this somewhere along the line. And, and by the way, this is something I just realized, rereading 1 Peter this morning. You know that Peter makes no reference whatsoever to fishing? Which was his career, his life, his job, the early part of his life. He's so far removed from that world, he he thinks like Jesus. And Jesus thinks about sheep. Jesus often uses illustrations of sheep. Um, he talks about God being the shepherd. Uh, this This idea, by the way, shepherding... The idea of viewing the people of God as a flock goes all the way back to the um, to the prophets. Uh, the prophets talk about the people of God as shepherd as sheep. Um, it goes back to David. You know, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. Um, all that stuff. So this is a very very Old Testament idea that the people of God are the flock. And he says, to shepherd the flock that is among you. Well, what does he mean by the flock that is among you? Well, if you were to go in an ancient world, you would find that shepherds both lead and follow at the same time. Now, what do, you mean, what do I mean by that? You will never ever see, um, or, or, you know, you will never ever hear of a shepherd who walked way ahead of his flock and just expected them to follow him. That's not how it works. You will also never see a shepherd walk way behind his flock and just expect that they know where they're going. A shepherd would always walk among the flock. He would be in the middle of the flock so that the sheep that needed kind of motivation were in front of him, were being motivated by the sheep that were behind him who were following him. So they all moved together as a group. And the sheep, they would compete for the shepherd's attention and one would wander off and he'd come over and smack it on the head and pull it back. You know, there there were all these things. But a shepherd would move like that. Now, today's shepherds were completely different. All right, They used dogs and all this stuff. They didn't use dogs to shepherd sheep in those days. The sheep grew up with the shepherd taking care of them. But here's a significant thing. Those shepherds didn't own those sheep. In the ancient world common people people like you and me owned very very little generally you owned the clothes on your back and that was it you say well they lived in houses didn't they own houses nope well they they had cars right no they had donkeys all right. Here's what happened in that world. Today, we live in America. America has a middle class. We have a group of people that are relatively prosperous who make money on their own and we live for the American dream, right? Own a house, own 2.1 kids. Um, you know, that we, 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 think of, we think of ourselves in a certain term. Well, in the ancient world, it didn't work like that. In fact, if you go to England, you'll actually see the leftovers of this. In England, very, very few people own land in England. Uh, the word landlord all right, that we use for a renter, all right, that comes from English common law. The guy who owned the land that your house sat on. Because you didn't own that land. You might build the house of your own expense, but it would still belong to the landlord. Well, the same thing happened. That's that's from feudalism, that's from the Middle Ages, and that came from the ancient world. In the ancient world, the wealthy all right the the greek word for wealthy by the way is great it it's the same word they use to describe somebody who's fat they say they are full f-u-l-l so a wealthy person someone who had everything and everybody else lived on the wealthy person's land and that was how it worked a very very small minority less than one percent of the population controlled everything for the other more than 99 percent so when you you know all the Activists are like, oh, the one percent, the ninety-nine percent. This is nothing new. And what would happen then? And Jesus uses this in his parables. You'll see this in Jesus' parables. There's always the guy who owns the thing, and then there are the people that take care of the thing, because the guys that own the thing have so many other things that they own that they can't take care of all of it. And so the person that that took care of it for the owner was a steward. All right. If it was land or a field, or if it was a, um, like a vineyard, it was a husband. All right. That's an old English word for, for somebody that takes care of a vineyard. Um, it, it, it does that kind of stuff. And so we had the husbands. Um, I'm not sure how that became the male partner of a marriage, but it, it is. And um, you know, But if, they were, if it was sheep, the person that took care of the sheep was the shepherd. But they weren't his sheep. They were the chief shepherd's sheep. And even though the chief shepherd may have done absolutely no leading the flock, if he showed up, though were they were his sheep. If he decided to slaughter one of those sheep, the shepherd had no say whatsoever because the chief shepherd owned the sheep. Now, I don't know where Peter learned this. This this particular style of shepherding is something that's very, very common in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, It was very common in that period, so we have a lot of references to it, Um, and it it must have occurred in Palestine, but we don't have a whole lot of, of reference to it, but somewhere along the line, this idea of the shepherd and the chief shepherd really resonated with Peter probably because of all of the parables Jesus tells about somebody taking care of something and then the master returning and asking him. Jesus tells the parable of the talents. He gives one guy five talents, two talents, one talent. Talent is a kind of money, and he leaves them to do it. There's a story about a vineyard that he leaves to husbandmen, and, the, and then he sends for, his, sends for the, the, the return the The produce and they they beat up the the husbands, the stewards they beat up the people that the master sends, and then he sends his son and they kill the son, and then the master gets really mad um, and it, Jesus tells these stories all the time and so it probably just sits in Peter's mind. it probably also sits in Peter's mind because at the book, end of the book of John we find that when Jesus was repairing his relationship with John uh, with Peter, Peter had denied Jesus at Jesus. Uh, trial, Jesus had been crucified, had been raised from the dead, and then he's talking with Peter, and he constantly says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And then Jesus says to him, then feed my sheep. Well, what's he saying there? I'm the chief shepherd, but I'm not going to be here. You shepherd my flock. And so this resonates with Peter. And Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then he describes the relationship between leadership and sheepleship. I don't have a better word for it, all right? Um, but shepherdship and sheepleship, all right? You'll never forget those terms right there shepherdship and sheepleship. Um, but the, uh, I just, wow. Uh, anyway, he says this: he says, exercising oversight, that's the end of verse 2. Not domineering all those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now let me extract from those three principles that you can apply in any situation where you are called to leadership. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the church or outside of the church. It doesn't matter if it's your home being leaders as husbands and wives or, or in a different place um, learning leadership. And, and I, I was reflecting upon the fact that, that I was taught leadership principles at a very, very young age. When I was a teenager, I was in Civil Air Patrol, which is an auxiliary of the United States Air Force, um, and uh, was getting ready for a military career. And we did leadership training. We did a lot of training about how to be a leader. And these principles apply. As well, just about anywhere as they do in the church, but they especially apply in the church. So let me share with you just these three things that Peter says. This is how we have to think like shepherds if we're going to shepherd the sheeple. All right. um, Now it's going to mess everything up. You know, here's the church. Here's the sheeple. Open the door. All right. Uh, (laughs) uh, But but we. As we, as we look at this idea of shepherding the flock among us, and, and I've heard sermons, let me just, let me go back for a second. I've heard sermons, of, preachers preach sermons about the people being the flock of God, and they refer to people as sheep, and they're like, and sheep are stupid, and they start talking about how dumb sheep are, and blah, 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 and they go through this all stuff. Let me tell you something. Sheep, with no sense of, uh, with no sense of speech, I mean, ba'ah, doesn't mean anything. The movie Babe notwithstanding, there is no language for sheep. All right. Um, they instinctively understand something that I wish every Christian in the world would master, which is this, you're safe with the shepherd. They ain't stupid. Sheep know who, who the shepherd is, and they know he's armed. So if a sheep gets attacked by a bear, guess what the sheep is trying to do when he starts bleeding out? He's not going, ow, ow. He's going, shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. So the shepherd will come and kill the bear. That's what he's doing. So sheep aren't that stupid. So when you get compared to a sheep, all right, for one thing, I mean, it's a kind of a, well, anyway, just take it as a, as, a com, as a compliment. Don't take it as a downplay. I don't know if you guys have ever heard a sermon where people like, people, I, I've heard it in leadership seminars, and that's one of the reasons I bring it up. I've heard pastors tell other pastors, your people are sheep, they don't know what they're doing, you have to help them. You know, this attitude of you're, you're in charge, and that's, that, I think that is so unbiblical, I think it's so unbiblical and I fight it in myself because I was trained that way and so the mentality of you just need to do what I want you to do and that's the way it is Um, but that's that's not biblical shepherding because it goes against these principles so here's the principles number one as he finishes this, he says, uh, "He says when the chief shepherd appears in verse 4. So the number one principle, and I've already mentioned this, the number one principle of leadership, of, of thinking like a shepherd, is to remember that you're under the authority of the chief shepherd. You don't own what you've been given to care for. You don't own what you've been given to care for. Now any of you that's ever loaned a car to one of your children knows that this is number one principle. You don't own this car. You don't have the right to do whatever you want with this car. Same thing. You don't own what God has entrusted to you. Moms and dads, you don't own your children. God entrusted your children to you. Men and women, you don't own your spouse. God has entrusted you with your spouse you don't have the right of ownership over the things that you have been given to care for this applies to the leaders of churches and it applies to leadership in the home and it applies to any situation in which you have been entrusted with something but don't we because we're modern Americans think we own things We tend to think we own things. Oh, this cute little bundle of joy that is my child. I can't wait to mold him or her into exactly what I wish I had been. But the reality is we as parents, we should be equipping our children to rise to the challenge of being men and women who honor God in their unique personalities and ways. And that's difficult for us because sometimes our kids don't think like us They don't talk like us. They don't want to do the things we want to do. And they don't want to do the things that we think they should really do because if I had had the opportunity to do that thing, I would have done it. But my mom and dad didn't think I should do it, so I didn't do it. Our responsibility as parents is to equip God's children to become God's men and women. Our responsibility as husbands and wives is to care for, encourage strengthen, love, mend, heal, challenge, learn from, teach our spouse to rise to be the man or woman that they're called to be. You say, well, if I'm single, I'm off on that one. I'm, I'm okay. The reality is if you're single, God has given you a special commission To minister to not just a husband or wife, but to be an instrument of encouragement to a much broader spectrum of people. By not having that one relationship, and the Apostle Paul talks about this about himself. He was single, probably widowed. Um, But he talks about because he he didn't have to do the thing that was involved in marriage, he was free to minister, which is an extraordinary statement. We will explore that another time. So, number one principle is remember what you have comes from the chief shepherd. You are under the authority of the chief shepherd. What you have been given is not yours. You don't own it. All right? Now I've stated the principle a bunch of different ways. But this is the dominant idea that he says. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. He says, so you've got the responsibility but you don't have the ownership. You've got the responsibility but you don't have the ownership. Secondly... When he says shepherd, he says exercising oversight but not under compulsion. A second principle of leadership. You are called a shepherd, thinking like a shepherd. A shepherd gives direction and counsel. A shepherd does not command. You cannot order a sheep to do things. Did you know that? Sheeps don't understand English. This is deep. This is profound. Um, And again, going back to one of my all-time favorite pig movies, Babe. Um, How many pig movies are there? There's only like three. All right. So you've got to rank them. Charlotte's Web, Babe, and then that other one, Gordy. All right. Um, (laughs) I don't count that. All right. So the good point, though. Good point. All right. Here's the deal, all right. In Babe, you know, in babe, the pig learns from the sheep how you know how to talk to the sheep, because the wolves, the dogs, all they ever do is yell all right at the sheep and they're gonna bite them and they're afraid of them and that's why they move. But when the when Babe figure oh now I'm gonna cry. Anyway, um all time, I just love Babe. I love that movie. The shepherd is awesome. Go, pig. All right. That'll do, pig, that'll do. All right. Um so so this um but when we look at this idea, right? This idea of how do we lead? We have to remember that we, we provide guidance, counsel, direction, but we can't command. Now the reality is I could try, as a, as a pastor, I could try to use fear and command and order and don't you know who I am to get people to do things. I could try that, but Linda would just laugh at me. I mean, the reality is I got mad one time at work a long time ago. I was working at Fidelity Investments. I was furious about something. And I sat right next to this, this, um, this really odd um, guy. And, and he looked at me. I was, I was mad. And he looked at me as I was, I was raging. And I put my phone down. And he just looked at me. And he goes, you look really goofy when you're mad. I'm like, man, I was really shooting for authoritative. And he's like, no. Now, you just sounded stupid. I'm like, awesome. All right? But, but here's the thing, right? We, we're, gonna, we're going to work with people, all right? And if we're working with people, command is not the answer. Command is great on a battlefield where you get shot if you don't hear orders. But it's not great for teaching people how to walk themselves, how to do things themselves. Guidance and counsel, di- directing people, uh, allowing people to explore things. Now, guidance doesn't mean, okay, I want you to get from here to there, come up with your own solution. Because I'll tell you right now, every child, if you say to a child, particularly a boy, all right, if you say to a boy, all right, I want you to go from this side of the room to the other side of the room, that becomes a challenge to do parkour, He's gonna be under chairs over chairs bouncing off windows, picking things up' He's gonna to try to find the most circuitous circuitous uh, roundabout way to get to wherever he's going all right this is this is the challenge right this is oh. but if we can if we can guide and counsel and correct no that's adding extra space let's try it this way let's do it this way let's see. we find the best way to do things rather than command. Finding guidance and counsel and direction. And and understanding that everybody thinks the same way. Remember what I said about the sheep in front? With a shepherd's flock, when the shepherd is among us, remember what I said about the sheep that are in front? They're usually the ones that are losing their way. And so the sheep behind them push them, keep them going in the right direction. All right? It's not the shepherd constantly whacking them on the head, but rather working together and moving together in the same direction. Guidance and counsel does a whole lot more with people than commands do. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times you have to yell and say, no, you can't cross the street with that car coming at you. There are moments. But even that is guidance. Even that is guidance. And it should be accompanied with explanation. If you try to cross the street while a car is coming, you will be dead. That's always a good explanation. No reason to mess around with that. All right. Third, third thing that you need to see. Third thing that you need to see. As he talks about this. He says, um, not for gain. Verse 4. Verse 2. Where am I? Verse 2. Not for gain. Not for shameful gain. But eagerly. Not domineering. That, by the way, is Owning. Right, domineer is the, the verb of dominate. All right, it's a form of dominate. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The first principle is you're under the authority of the chief priest chief shepherd, so um, you don't own what God has entrusted to you. And the second principle is we guide and we lead through direction and counsel, not commands. But the third principle that you need to understand is we must lead by example. We cannot lead by guilt, fear, manipulation. We must lead by example. I want my son to grow up, I don't have one, but I want your sons to grow up to love and respect the woman that God gives them as their spouse. Well, you know what you've got to do in order to get a son that's going to grow up to love and respect the woman that God gives them as a spouse? You've got to love and respect the woman that God gave you as a spouse. Moms, you want your daughters to not grow up being loose, not being out of control, not not hooking up with the wrong kind of guy. You know the most important thing you can do is as a wife, you can teach moderation, you can teach modesty, you can teach self-respect, you can teach self-esteem, you can teach them the proper role of a woman in the world, the proper way to assess their value. I look around myself in this world and I see tons of men and women who are finding their value in the complete wrong way. Oh my goodness, they're so immodest. If they were just covering themselves up, we wouldn't have... The problem is not their immodesty. Their immodesty is a symptom of a mindset that determines their value by their sexuality and the appeal that they place in other people's minds. And that's not where your value comes from. A Christian's value comes from Christ loves me. God is working through me to do something extraordinary to people around me. You see, how do you how do you get over, you know, how do you get over a struggle with self-esteem? You've got to find your identity in Christ. There's no other way to overcome self-esteem problems. And if you know who you are in Christ, and your value is determined not by what other people want to do to you, but rather, what Christ has done through you, you will change your thinking. It's not about moralism. Moralism is a term for do the right things to make God happy. Some people confuse moralism and legalism. Legalism is do the right things to be saved. Moralism is do the right things to make ha- God happy. Uh, but we very easily, we confuse moralism for morality. Morality comes from the example of Christ. Moralism comes from demanding that people behave a certain way. And we find our morality in Christ. You say, well, how do you you teach that? Well, the only way you can teach that, I'm going to be honest, the only way you can teach that is by example. It's by example. The church, and here's our big idea, The church, to the Apostle Peter, is defined by stewardship of what God has given. Not success as man defines it. The church is defined by stewardship of what God has given, not by success as man defines it. As I plow through the seminary education that I never had, I have discovered one dominant principle that drives so much of the error in modern churches. And it is the mentality that success is defined by human standards. That in order for you to be a successful pastor, you have to have a big church. Somebody said to me, well, the church is an organism. I said, yeah, well, organisms grow. A healthy church is constantly growing. You know that mammals don't constantly grow? We reach a certain altitude and then we begin to create some longitude. All right? Or latitude, parallels of latitude, right? Um, but the but the reality is no that's meridians of longitude yeah I was right uh, the um, but the reality is mammals reach a certain point you know the only kind of cells in mammals that continue to grow are cancer cells the human cell replaces the existing cells but it doesn't continue to multiply cells after a while we find we reach stasis look this is what I'm gonna get my wife said to me today she goes I think you're getting shorter. I looked at her. My first instinct was, I'm going to make you shorter. But my se- and then my second response was, hey, maybe that's the way God's just keeping all the hair on my head. But the reality is, I, I am what I am. My body grows to a certain size, and then it's up to me to keep that certain size healthy and strong. And, and you know what? Human standard of success in the church is flawed. It's flawed. The reality is a congregation and leaders, leaders will be able to lead the flock that God has intended them to be stewards of. Some guys can be stewards of 30,000 people and do a fantastic job, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the determiner of what a good steward is. A good steward, a good shepherd, takes care of the flock that has been entrusted to him. You say... I mean, I, we love our daughter. She's, she's my favorite daughter in the whole world. Um, do, I, do I sometimes wish that I had a son that I might mold in my image that the world would not be ready for that? Um, you know what the reality is? You can't live your life saying, what if, or I wish I had. That's a human standard of success. A biblical standard of success is to shepherd the flock that is among you. Whatever God has entrusted to you at this moment or in the future or in the past, you can't change the past, but the reality is we must define ourselves by good stewardship of that thing, not by wanting something else, not by longing for something else. And you know the something else that we long for? Sometimes on practical terms, the something else, the success that we long for is the validation of others. Sometimes the success that we long for is is kind of an idealized image of ourselves. Sometimes the success we long for is some some movie star airbrushed idol that you're never going to look like anyway, so stop trying and just be yourself. And that applies to everything. Sometimes the success we long for is that car. Or, or that house or or uh, that, that, that ability or that skill and by all means improve what you have. be a good steward of what you have but don't judge yourselves by what others have or what you don't have. Everything you have is a blessing and you are called to be a steward and shepherd of what you have what you possess. Now, the apostle Peter would not have written these things if it wasn't hard for us to do. It is not automatic for us to think of ourselves as stewards of God's possessions. Because we are human beings, we are fallen, and Adam and Eve ate of the one thing God told them not to eat because they were and they were stewards of what God had given them. We have it it's work. It's hard to be a good steward of what God has given you and to not focus outside. You know, not not to walk by that other shepherd and go, "Wow, his sheep are so much better behaved than my sheep. Oh my goodness, did you see how fluffy his sheep are? <laughs> I want fluffy sheep like that. These are my sheep. This is our congregation. This is our families. This is what we're called to And you are, make no mistake about it, as called to the place you are in life, as I am called to the place I'm in life. As the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were called to their place in life, you are called to this place in life. You are called to this role. You are called to shepherd the resources that you have been given, to care for the people that you have been provided for. That's what you're called to do. And you're equipped to do it in, in the way that God has equipped you, and everybody's equipped a little bit different. Doesn't make it any less extraordinary. Doesn't make us any less extraordinary. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the flocks that are among us. Families, children, our parents, our grandparents, we care for. Thank you for trusting us with what we've got. And thank you for not and not giving us more than you have gifted us to deal with. Thank you for challenging us to rise to the task of being shepherds, caretakers, Leaders, husbands, wives, parents, children, co-workers, co-laborers, friends, acquaintances, financial supporters, all of these different things that You have called us to be. Father, we know You have called us to this. Help us to remember Gauge our, our definitions and our tasks and our roles according to what you have given us as stewards. Lord, help us to weed out of our thinking the, the standards, the human standards that are often given to us, often forced upon us. Whether we're talking about politics or we're talking about relationships or we're ta- anything, Lord, help us to weed those things out and replace them with your priorities. So that if you were to come and to see the flock, to be here amongst our flock, you would look at it and despite our brokenness, you would say, but you're doing a good job taking care of what I've given to you. What more could we hear from you that we do what you have called us to do? Thank you for all that you have given us. In Jesus' name.